Welcome to The Buzz. I'm Christopher Conover. Arizona's political boundaries are about to change. This week, we look at the work of the Arizona Independent Redistricting Commission. In 2000, Arizona voters approved Proposition 106, which created the Arizona Independent Redistricting Commission. The panel is made up of two Republicans, two Democrats, and a politically independent chair and is tasked with redrawing the state's congressional and legislative boundaries. Commissioners are now working on that task, but it's not a matter of just tweaking the map we are currently working under. Instead, they must start from scratch, and constitutionally they are required to use six criteria for districts. Colleen Mathis, the chair of the last commission, says those requirements include two that are federally mandated, compliance with the Federal Voting Rights Act and equal number of residents. The other requirements for the districts, which include compactness, respect for communities of interest, competitiveness, and keeping geographic areas together, according to Mathis. It turned out the Arizona Supreme Court had actually ruled that the six criteria well, especially the four that aren't federally mandated, are to be weighted equally. Because frankly, you can't apply them equally. They compete with each other. So it's a really tricky balance um, in terms of actually applying the criteria. But you have to at least weigh them equally. One of those criteria that we hear a lot about, at least in the discussions the current commission is having right now, is geographically compact and contiguous as possible. For the layperson who maybe wasn't here 10 years ago or doesn't pay that much attention to this because they have other things going on in their lives, what does that mean? Because it's a phrase we hear a lot. It turns out the way the Constitution is written um, in terms of applying these criteria, the four that are not federally mandated are all to the extent practicable. That's the operative language in the Constitution. So it means that the commission, while they have to weigh everything equally, because these criteria compete with each other, it's impossible to apply them equally. And so that's kind of the wiggle room language to the extent practicable. The districts must be compact and contiguous. They have to respect communities of interest. They have to use visible geographic features like city, town, and county boundaries and undivided census tracts and then favor competitive districts where no significant detriment to other goals. And that's what's so tricky about these criteria because they're not in any kind of hierarchy. Some states that have independent redistricting actually lay out the the criteria in a hierarchical manner. In Arizona, thanks to the Arizona Supreme Court deciding that the way this should be interpreted is all the criteria are of equal weight. They should all be considered equally. But then, you know, you have to apply them to the extent practicable. And so there may be extenuating circumstances where, for instance, compactness is sacrificed because you're respecting a community of interest. And so goes with all of the criteria. They do compete with each other. And that's where it's a really tough job on the commissioners to try to figure out, okay, What do we prioritize here? What do we value the most for this particular situation? And so they'll be making a lot of judgment calls um, around this and hopefully applying the criteria equally and then doing the best they can to accommodate the most goals possible. You mentioned communities of interest. That's the other one we hear so much about. So 
Again, for the layperson, what is a community of interest? It's broad. I mean, it can be defined in a whole bunch of different ways. But essentially, it's a a group of people that somehow view their community, so to speak, their group, as benefiting from representation uh, from one representative, so to speak. So oftentimes they don't want to be divided. A great example, an obvious example that I think is sort of unassailable, is a Native American tribe, because those tribes are on reservations with defined boundaries. Typically, tribes don't want to be divided. There may be a, a time where a tribe says, hey, we're okay with actually being in two districts. We think that we would benefit by having two representatives paying attention to our needs. But in most cases, a tribal reservation is a community of interest that shouldn't be divided. I know that's how our commission treated it, but it's not to say a tribe couldn't come forward and say, we actually want to be in two. So that's the common thought is if there are groups of people that want to be kept together and whole in a single district, they can define themselves as a community of interest that doesn't want to be divided. So that's, that's, it can be anything. It could be besides the tribal reservation that I mentioned, it could be a flood district. It could be a school district. It could be a whole city or a whole town. In most cases, you probably can't do a whole city. I mean, in parts of Arizona, you could, but certainly not Tucson or Phoenix, just because the population is too large to fit into one district. There's going to be multiple communities of interest in one district. So 10 years ago, Republicans said the maps were slanted against them. Democrats argued that the maps produced a legislature and congressional delegation that pretty well reflected the divide politically in Arizona. So with the benefit of 2020 hindsight, what's your appraisal of the maps that we're now getting ready to replace that have been in place for 10 years? Well, first, I'm I, I'm probably biased, but I am very proud of those maps, frankly, because well, for one thing, the job of the Arizona Independent Redistricting Commission is to oversee the mapping of fair and competitive districts. That's what the language is that was voted on by the voters when they considered bringing independent redistricting to Arizona. So our job isn't to draw Republican districts or Democratic districts. It's to draw fair and competitive districts. That's really what was at the heart of Prop 106. And we strove our hardest to do that. You know, as a political independent, I would love to draw nine competitive districts for the congressional map. That's not reality, though, because, you know, there's all these other criteria that come into play. And there's also, you know, clustering, natural clustering of populations where people live. There are rural communities, there are urban communities, there could be communities of interest uh, that come into play that are in one part of the state that aren't in another that affect the competitiveness of a given district. And same goes for the Voting Rights Act, which is, again, a federally mandated criteria. And when you comply with the Voting Rights Act, you have to draw districts that allow certain groups of people to have the ability to elect the candidate of their choice. And when you comply with that, that only leaves so many others to put in other districts. So you begin to see how these things all compete with each other. And it's a really difficult balancing act, but we strived, our commission strived very hard to accommodate all the goals. Uh, we weighed them all equally and then applied them to the best of our ability to 
draw maps that really reflect how Arizona fits together as a state. We really tried to pay attention to communities of interest, um, how people naturally um, fit together, and um, and then also favor competitive districts, you know, whenever possible. So uh, when you look at the results of our map, I, I know there's been a critique, but on the congressional district map, you know, one of those competitive districts we drew flipped back and forth between Republican and, and Democratic control all decade. And to me, that's success. Like, I love to see competition. I think it's an inherently American value to value competitiveness. It makes for better candidates who have to listen to both sides, frankly, and really all sides in order to get reelected. They've got to try to strike that balance among their constituents. So competitiveness is, is just really important to value. And, and again, thinking back to what those drafters of Prop 106 were trying to do. What's the best way for them to approach the commission and be heard and, and hopefully get at least some of what they want? Because as you've said, this is a big compromise for the whole state. I hope, frankly, that your listeners are paying attention to what's happening right now, because for the next eight weeks or so, this commission, the current commission, is going to be drawing and is currently drawing the draft maps. I think their timeline is to have the draft maps completed by the end of October and final maps by December 22nd. And it's really incumbent upon the public to pay attention and to participate in the process to the extent practicable, to use that language that's in the Constitution, because it affects everybody. Redistricting affects everyone, um, whether they're voters or not for the next 10 years. So it's very vital, frankly, to have a healthy democracy that folks are actually paying attention and going to meetings if they can or submitting public comment to them. And that public comment really needs to be as specific as possible. Having sat on the other side, I can tell you that when a community of interest came to us and said, here's what we want, here are the actual boundaries, here are the we want to be 78th Street to 7th Street to, you know, Sunrise and, and uh, Grant or whatever it is. So you give them defined boundaries of exactly what you want. That's what's most useful. These commissioners are faced with just a boatload of data and they're trying to make sense of so many things and paying attention to the every corner of the state. So it's really important for Tucsonans, Southern Arizonans to get out there and actually participate. That was Colleen Mathis, the former chair of Arizona's Independent Redistricting Commission. One community of interest in Arizona is tribal land. Blair Tarman is a native vote fellow at the Indian Law Clinic at the Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law at ASU. She says the Redistricting Commission has certain legal obligations when it comes to tribal lands in Arizona. So the redistricting commission in, in redrawing the districts in general has to comply with six constitutional requirements. But more than that, when it comes to tribes, the independent redistricting commission also has to comply with section two of the Voting Rights Act. So section two of the Voting Rights Act just prohibits redistricting plans that dilute the power of a person's vote due to their race or ethnicity. So a redistricting plan violates Section 2 if Native Americans have less opportunity um, than other voters do to elect representatives of their choice. So for Section 2 to apply, Native voters have to be relatively um, geographically compact, 
generally support the same candidates and have enough people to be a majority of eligible voters in at least one district. So in complying with Section 2, a good rule of thumb is that the commission has an obligation not to split up a tribe's reservation into multiple districts, unless, of course, a tribe has a reason for wanting their district to be split up. And obviously, each tribe has its own unique interests. So some tribes may have a reason for wanting to be in separate districts and think, you know, their interests are better represented if they are split into multiple districts. So it's really just on a a tribe-by-tribe basis. It's interesting talking about Section 2 and looking at the maps we're all currently living with that were designed 10 years ago. That first congressional district has most of the tribal areas in the state in it, but there are different tribal areas. In the south, you have, for example, the White Mountain Apache, and in the north, you have the Hopi and the Navajo and the Havasupai. Is there a problem with that, treating all native nations, all tribal areas, as one community of interest? I think that's a good point, and that's where it gets complicated, because certainly there are tribes that would consider themselves in a community of interest with other tribes and other cities and other tribes that may have more in common with uh, rural interests or urban interests. So all of these things have to be taken into account. And really, the only people who can speak to what that community of interest is are the tribe itself, because those interests do get so complicated. And we're talking about 22 sovereign nations. So even just talking about you know, what your community of interest is, that's an act of tribal sovereignty. So testifying to that through these public hearings, that's why that process is so important. And and it's so important for the commission to take those comments into consideration as they redraw these district boundaries. How hard is it for people living on tribal land to get their voices heard in front of the commission? It is difficult because, um, you know, and and even just tracking what the Independent Redistricting Commission is up to on a weekly basis is difficult because while these meetings are streamed online and there's a big effort to have transparency in the redistricting process, it's difficult for tribal members living on reservation to be constantly up to date because, you know, half of the homes don't have access to broadband. It's difficult to get on the internet. And then when the public hearings are held, the opportunity to participate in person, it's often a long ways away from tribal members living on reservation, as you said, and and so are the satellite locations. And I know at least one hearing was held on the Navajo reservation, I believe. And it's easier for tribal leaders, you know, to get to these meetings and and things. But to have tribal members participate is definitely a more difficult thing because then you get into issues of, you know, transportation as well. And often that's an obstacle for on-reservation tribal members. That was Blair Tarman with the Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law at Arizona State University. You're listening to The Buzz. I'm Christopher Conover. This week, we're looking at the process of redrawing Arizona's political boundaries. Arizona is one of 21 states using some form of a redistricting commission to draw political boundaries. Others allow the legislatures to do that job. 
The political districts are supposed to have equal numbers of residents, but in some rural areas there are questions about where those numbers come from. Democratic State Senator Martin Quesada says in Pinal County that quest for numbers leads to a practice known as prison gerrymandering. Prison gerrymandering is the practice of counting prisoners, people who are incarcerated uh, in the state, where they are incarcerated uh, at the time of that count rather than where they actually live. And, and a good example of that would be my district where uh, I represent Legislative District 29, which is parts of Maryville and Glendale. We have the largest percentage of individuals who are actually currently incarcerated right now. Those individuals are incarcerated in a prison in another part of the state and they are being counted there uh, for the purposes of the census and the purpose of the of, of redistricting. Uh, yet they reside and they have ties to my district. So uh, rather than being counted here in my district in their home, they're being counted elsewhere. And so what that does is it uh, takes away the power of my district, uh, the power of the number of people who are there, and it gives that power to another part of the state where those people and their interests aren't going to be as well represented as they probably should be. Well, and of course, if we're talking about, for example, Florence, which has a a large number of state prisons, they get tied into the representation numbers, but they can't vote. Yes, no, that is correct. Um, And so what you have is essentially that um, legislator who represents that district is given a free pass for a, a large number of individuals that they really don't have to pay attention to their issues as much because they aren't voters, because they don't have ties to that community. And because once they're released, because most of them do get released, they're going to leave that district as well. So it's almost like you're giving that legislator a free pass for human beings that they should be representing. What about the private prisons that house inmates from other states? We have that uh, also actually in the Florence area where we have prisoners from Hawaii, prisoners you know, from across the country. Does this cause a problem also? Of course. I mean, those are, are also um, additional bodies, additional human beings that are being counted that don't have a tie uh, to that district. In fact, they don't have a tie to the state at all. Uh, and so um, what, it, what it does essentially is it, is it gives, again, it gives that, that legislator, those politicians in that geographic area, a credit uh, for people uh, that they should be representing who they really aren't. Uh, and so what ends up happening is rather than representing the interests of those individuals who are incarcerated, regardless of where they're from, they could be from Hawaii, they could be from another nation, they could be from other parts of the state, they end up representing that prison industry uh, that is there uh, because that is the foundation of that district. That is the, um, uh, the, the one thing that's not going to leave. Uh, and so the motivations and the loyalties then go to an industry rather than to human beings. And I think that's problematic. Let's talk about another population that lives in districts but doesn't stay there necessarily. That's college students. Could college students possibly inflate the numbers and therefore the power for Flagstaff, Tempe, Tucson? And how do they differ from prisons? Well, they differ in in a significant way. Uh, Number one, they're there by choice. Uh, A college student who chooses to attend higher education, to get it, earn a degree, they are going there by choice. They are moving, they are relocating to that position. True, they may decide to leave later, which is also their choice. Um, And so uh, as opposed to an inmate, uh, a person who's incarcerated, 
who is literally being deprived of their liberty uh, and being housed in a place that they don't want to be. They don't want to stay. They don't have a tie to. So a college student, when they uh, move to another town to attend an institution of higher education, they're making a personal choice to relocate. uh, And then they're making a decision from that point forward. Many students stay in that area. Many students move to a a different part than they came from. But it it is all in the end their choice. So that point in time where they are choosing to reside, choosing to uh, register to vote, is where they should be counted. Uh, Many students do relocate, but they still remain registered at home. And so that's also a part of their choice because they have a closer tie to their home community and they want their vote to be counted there. And so um, uh, it's really just a matter of of choice and where those students uh, decide that they want to be counted and where they want their voice to be heard. So what's the solution to this prison gerrymandering issue as you see it? Well, you know, so a couple of other states have introduced legislation and passed legislation that would um, actually count inmates where they came from before they were incarcerated. That's where they are most likely to return to after they're released as well. And so uh, counting them in their home districts seems to make the most sense because that's, again, it's where they came from. It's where their families are located. It's where their their jobs were located before they you know, got into uh, criminal trouble. Um, and, and it's where they're they're most likely to return after they are released. So that is their foundation. That is their anchor uh, to them as human beings in the state. And so it makes sense to count those individuals where their true residence is located. And so I think that what that does is it creates a more realistic count of different communities and and what ties people have to those communities and what values those elected officials should be advocating for in terms of who they actually and truly represent rather than just a snapshot in time that um, you know opponents claim that the prison gives them. I mean, I, I believe it would require a, a change in, in the law to actually do that. And, and I've, I've proposed, I've introduced legislation uh, to do that um, the last couple of years now. Um, and, and I intend to do it again. And I think that this is this is not just a this year problem. I think that we should be looking you know, continuously into the future about as well. Whether we fix it in this round or not, it would be a, a tragedy if we don't. But it's still an issue that we do have to address. And we, we need to have a really kind of an, an intelligent debate about to understand, you know, what is the best way to count people and what is the best way to ensure that people are represented by their government. And, and I think that there is a legitimate debate about the way that we're doing things now and how it's not necessarily working all that well. So I, I hope that this will be an issue that we do uh, debate into the future, even if we aren't able to fix it for this round of redistricting, which we likely won't. That was State Senator Martin Quesada. The Independent Redistricting Commission has just released its latest set of maps. Arizona Public Media's Andrew Oxford covers the commission and joins us now in the studio. So, Andrew, where are we in the process? The first of four phases is pretty much over. Uh, The commission has these drafts. They're going to have meetings all next week to talk about these. Then there will be another 30-day comment period, and the aim is to finalize some maps in December. Where do the current draft maps leave Tucson and Southern Arizona? The Tucson area right now is sort of divided between three different congressional districts, right? But that might change. So for the last decade, folks up in Oro Valley and Marana have been lumped into the same congressional district as Flagstaff. Congressional District 1 is a real behemoth, and it stretches from the north end of the state to the south to Pinal County and northern Pima County. The current draft maps call for moving Oro Valley and Marana and Saddlebrook into a congressional district that would cover all of Cochise County, stretch north to Safford and Clifton, and down into the foothills into Tucson. 
It would take the northern and eastern end of the city, sort of like the current Congressional District 2, which is Ann Kirkpatrick's district. The rest of Tucson would go into something like what is now Congressional District 3, Raul Grijalva's district. It would include the university, downtown, south Tucson, Green Valley, Santa Cruz County, and stretch out to Yuma. There's some discussion about whether to put all of Yuma into that district or split it the way it is now. Either way, it would be a fairly democratic district. The other district, though, that eastern Tucson district, would potentially be really competitive. Which it has been for at least a decade. So how do all of these proposed possible changes change the balance of power between Republicans and Democrats? Some rough calculations show the current drafts would create five congressional districts that voted for Biden and four that voted for Trump. Uh, That's effectively what we had last year. And that's not to say we'll have the status quo, though. Uh, Democrats would probably lose the congressional district covering the northern end of the state. That's Tom O'Halloran's district. And drafts call for expanding it to take in Prescott. Uh, So it would be a more Republican district, but Democrats would probably gain a congressional seat around Scottsdale. There'd be some really competitive districts too, like I said, that East Tucson district would be competitive. And there's also some talk of kind of lumping Tempe and Mesa and Chandler together in a district that could also be pretty competitive. The Independent Redistricting Commission does more than just congressional districts. They have the legislative districts to do. What are the legislative districts looking like for Arizona right now? So right now, Tucson proper is sort of split between, you know, different legislative districts. Speedway is like a dividing line. Think of it that way. The draft maps would end that. Instead, everything south of River, east of Oracle, and north of Gulf Links would be one big legislative district. There'd be another district west of Oracle stretching north to Marana and south to Drexel Heights. It would be fairly democratic, and that would break up the current uh, uh, Mark Fincham, Brett Roberts district. Oro Valley and points north would be lumped into a sprawling district that would include the western portion of Pinal County. The foothills would be its own district uh, with the the eastern end of the county. Davis-Monthan would be moved out of a more Democratic-leaning district right now into a more conservative one with Cochise County, Safford, Clifton. And Santa Cruz County would be included in a district that would take in Green Valley. We've mentioned earlier in the show when we talked with Colleen Mathis about the public can get involved. You said there's a 30-day comment period coming. If the public goes and looks at the maps and doesn't like what they see, how do they get that information to the redistricting commission just to remind folks again? They've put a ton of information on their website, irc.az.gov. And so that may be the best place to get started is on their website. All right, Andrew, thanks so much. You bet. That was AZPM reporter Andrew Oxford, and that's the buzz for this week. You can visit our website for links to the public comment section at the Independent Redistricting Commission and to see the latest maps. Megan Myskowski helped produce this week's show. Jim Blackwood is our production engineer. Our music is by Enter the Haggis. I'm Christopher Conover. Thanks for listening. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.